0: What does a queer future look like? When we think of how societies are built, we often reflect back upon what was established before us. The foundations of our cultures and communities. But what happens when we are positioned to establish the values and ideals of a society yet to develop? Ireland is a country well positioned to begin devising such plans. In part one of this two-parter, Building a Queer Island, we learned much of how LGBTQ rights were forged in the face of great resistance. Now, as we stand on the foundations of that social change, we must ask the question, what changes going forward? What is left to build for a queer island? Welcome to episode 17 Slash queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. In this episode, we return to our conversation with infamous Irish queer rights activist Tony Walsh, who, in the previous episode, spoke to us about the beginnings of the queer and gay liberation movements in Ireland, his involvement with the organizations behind the movements. And the long standing fight for the rights and recognitions available to Irish queers today. If you haven't already, we at Slash Queer would strongly encourage you to take a listen to the previous episode before continuing here. The queer history of Ireland is complex and is by no means linear. Today, we explore issues of rural queerness, ageing queers the importance of maintaining access to a queer history, and pathways for the advancement of LGBTQ plus politics in Ireland. We begin where we left off, with Tony and his discussion of what queer community means and what it might look like moving forward.
1: There's a question you asked about notions of community and I'm, I'm struck by how um, too often we treat the LGBT community I mean, it's a term I hate, as some sort of monolithic construct. And I think actually we, what we've created, we've shaped a monolithic construct because it actually suits sort of certain types of intellectual arguments and posturing, cultural posturing and social posturing. But of course, you and I know that there's actually no such thing as an LGBT community. There are several communities within what I'd like to sort of notionally um, imagine as a rainbow society. You know and sometimes we have we even have competing interests as well you know and oppositional oppositional interests whether it's you know i'm thinking of say commercial prize. i i, I went up to derry derry straband prides there it's called foil pride a couple of years ago and it's the only pride festival on the island of ireland that is continues to be non commercial and they take their they take their non-commercial constitution very seriously but it's um it was really interesting to sort of like it's really interesting just to see how i forgot what i want to say there (laughs) squashes
0: Well, I think I think what you were potentially referring to was the question where I was saying, you know, are there any misconceptions about LGBT and queer culture in Ireland that you wish to dispel and how does it differentiate to kind of the culture and communities in, in other parts of the West?
1: I just kind mean, of so wonder how there's actually uh, the first significant difference that I think that I see is that we don't have a commercial scene of the order magnitude of many other Urban cultures. I mean, I'm thinking of all the large urban centres. You know, you can take this as a given the world over that LGBT people, indeed all marginalised people, tend to gravitate towards large urban centres because that's where social inf- in social infrastructure is uh, usually it's better embedded, and uh, the choice is available for people. So people tend to gravitate. I don't necessarily think that's always a good thing because, you know, we can just, we strip small towns and villages of their, we strip them of something essential and necessary. That queer world view, that queer world, that queer humanity, you know, can just be stripped of a small village if we don't find ways for, if we don't find ways for LGBT people to lead meaningful lives in places that they choose. And uh, I'll give you an example, like, I was born in Dublin, and as a child I moved down to Clonmel, County Prairie, a small town in the gravitational pull of Waterford and Limerick, beautiful countryside Munster. And I grew up in Clonmel. and then once, once I did my leaving search, I hightailed it back to Dublin to do university and lost my head and my heart to, Uh, activism and then many many years later in my 40s moved back down to come to be a full-time carer to my mother and when I moved back down in 2007 so I would have been 47 or something yeah and uh, I'd actually just become HIV positive as well this weird situation but I found myself as middle-aged gay man in this small town and you know come when the fatal Presumptions that many Dubliners make, and especially the lazy, lazy media, is is that you know, urban life ends at the M50, and of course it doesn't. I mean, there's most of Irish life is actually distinctly urban in every single way, culturally, physically, it's urban. A Clonmel is 19,000 people, it's surrounded by hinterland of 60,000 people. Its culture is distinctly urban. It's not. It's not provincial. It's just a smaller version of Dublin. It has its marks and sparks and its TK Maxx and its bad planning, suburban planning, not unlike Dublin, Belfast and Corp. It has It has social alienation. It has not enough opportunities for teenagers. It's got major drug consumption that's the result of boredom. It's got all the myriad problems that are part and parcel of urban life, except on a smaller scale. But I'm saying that because in the 10 years that I was down there, I found myself really lonely because uh, I don't use dating apps or anything like that. I never have. I, and I found myself really lonely and just, it was once you get over not having sex, which I did for a couple of years. I mean, it that. That was actually quite, became quite easy. What I really, really missed was intimacy. And it got me thinking about how we frame intimacy uh, and the structures we need to put in place for people of various cultural sensibilities and age backgrounds. Um, the systems we need to put in place for people to avail of intimacy. And that led me down some thoughts and track about, you know, growing older as a gay man, as a trans man or woman, as a a lesbian, growing older in a place like Clonmel. And actually you could extend this to sort of heterosexual men and women who, for whom heteronormativity was never a choice heterosexual men and women who also just decided not to get married and not to have children or not to be, not to have themselves, not to have their life simply validated through the relationships they have or the children they had or had not. So it got me thinking, I feel I'm rambling a bit here, but what I'm trying to say is that, like, I thought long and hard about the things we need to do and how necessary it is for us right now to have conversations around what it takes for people to lead meaningful lives, meaningful social lives, meaningful cultural lives, in towns, villages of their choices. You know, I think that's that's I think that's that's one of the big issues facing the LGBT community as we have an aging demographic. We have to talk about that.
0: There is a brilliant concept within queer theory, which articulates much of what Tony is describing here. In Jack Halberstam's 2005 book, In a Queer Time and Place, Halberstam introduces the term metronormativity. Metronormativity, for Halberstam, is the normalisation of the urban centre as a space of progression, visibility and liberation for queer people. For the urban to be progressive and liberal, the rural must be backward and conservative. What then, as scholars of queer-rurality, as it's called, have asked, happens to rural queers? What possible lives might LGBTQ individuals live if they do not want to live in urban cities? For some, this potentially erases the validity of rural queerness as a meaningful way of living. While the concept of metronormativity is decidedly USA-focused in its context, Tony's articulation of Irish queerness bears similarity to this concept. What ideas of queerness become normalized as we push for political and cultural shifts? And who else's queerness do we erase as we do so? It would seem that to be gender and sexuality diverse in Ireland is to navigate a complex geopolitical landscape. Furthermore, an aging queer population, particularly those in the so-called rural geographies, may indeed be expected to compromise on their beliefs. There is a deficit of caregivers for the elderly across much of Europe. The priority at this time is training said caregivers on the bare essentials to fill that deficit. Undeniably, many professional carers will be ill-equipped to understand the social and emotional needs of queer elders whose kinship structures and complex life experiences may necessitate different forms of support and empathy how do we as a community grow old in supportive spaces with our values and practices preserved if we are queer
1: and we have to and we have to we have to frame it in the context of the hard Battles we fought, to choices we made. Because why the hell should we have? Should we give it up? Why should we settle for less just because we've reached fifty-five or sixty-five or whatever? You know, I want to grow older, and you know, I'm sixty, but inside I still feel (laughs) twenty-five. That's the bloody horrible paradox of getting older. It's not the dying; it's the plateau. But it's also, you know, I just think inside somewhere, the the choices I made at twenty-five are still valid. You know, they're still valid for me in terms of the way I want to socialize. The value system, the value system that I not only fought long and hard for, but spent a long time looking for. These are things that I would like to think will envelop me and cocoon me as I head into, slide into my sixties and seventies, you know. Um, and it's a big question we need to be having. I, I was amazed that about five years ago, GCN did a significant article on ageing called Golden Queers, and they put one of my darling friends, uh, and they actually formed tutor of mine, Alvar Smith, on the front cover. And I thought, okay, bravo, we're finally we're finally having these conversations, you know, about ageing. It's really, really important. Really important. I do think one of the things that marks out the LGBT community in Ireland from other communities abroad is a profound sense of community that we have. I think there is, and the structures are there, uh, we build those structures ourselves because we actually didn't get that much help. We didn't get that much help, certainly in the early days. You know, you look at something like Belong to the Youth Group and now they they get funding from the Department of, of Family and Children, they get funding from the Department of Justice and what it may possibly be, social protection, whatever. Not, that never happened in the 80s or even into the early 90s. So I think it's really exciting that that's stuff like that's happening. Wow.
0: Yeah, I think it, those provisions are something that's been overlooked for the longest time. And going back to what you said about aging queers as well, I think because of the impact of the AIDS crisis, it's really a subject that's only coming to a head now because of the people that that did survive and who kind of paved the way for our communities and now are in a position where never before have we really had to talk about, well, what does it look like, you know, as you get older as a queer person, you know, what accommodations need to be made. Mm -hmm. I think about how we do still see, like, beyond a certain age, we still assume cis-heteronormativity of a particular generation. And I I sometimes worry about the erasure of that queer community.
1: Well, I mean, you know, you know, as well as I do, that one of the unique qualities of our rainbow society the LGBT community is that of all of the subcultures that we know of we are the only one that does not have heredity in the sense that we know it there are the parent-child links that are the convention of all other subcultural groups so you know it's and that's also one of the reasons acknowledging that is actually one of the Things that drives my abiding sense of historicity, my abiding sense of wanting to preserve our past and celebrate, celebrate our history and celebrate and try and define some of the um, intergenerational and metagenerational links that have been established. It's really important. It's important in terms of passing on stories of struggles past. So it's important in terms of passing on and sharing the, the, the wonder of how we, we framed our relationships and our friendships, you know? They're the building blocks of community. They're really important. We should never take them for granted. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's good. I don't want to go and beat people over the head about how bloody brutal it was back in the 70s or 80s or whatever else, you know? Because actually I survived. And I'm here right now, you know, and it's now, it's now we need to talk about the future is now, now we need to talk about it. But it's, it is really important to, I think every now and then to have a moment to take stock of the distance we've traveled and go, wow, what got us here? Who got us here? And I think, you know, to me, that's the abiding value, for example, of, of pride every year, the ideal time for us to have that sort of metaphysical moment and even to have a conversation about it as well and to acknowledge the journey to acknowledge and I, I think too in in Ireland we have been we have been and I don't want to I'm aware that I've been part of this dynamic but I just I need to say that we have been the LGBT community has been really well served by its leaders. We've been very lucky at the people we've inherited, and people who have given us certain things, who've not only signposted the journey for us, but who have emboldened us along the way. There are many, many, many extraordinary people and it's i suppose it's not only now the distance of time that we're actually taking moment, and also because of the cl- proliferation of queer studies and queer history studies and everything else which of course you are very much an important part of but it's uh, only as a result of that, this recent development so that i think we're a lot we become a lot more mindful and aware of the roles that various people have played and the decisions that people have made to sort of get us to this place. We're also very lucky in Ireland too, and I'm wearing my Irish Queer Archive hat now, we're really lucky that we have have what I call the foundational documents of the Irish, almost all of the foundational documents of the Irish LGBT civil rights movement, either in the Irish Queer Archive or the Cork Archive, or else in the burgeoning trans archive that my dear friend Sarah Phillips is developing. So we have all these foundation documents, which are really, really important. And it means we have access to the thought processes and the choices and the dreams of our founding brothers and sisters. That's really important. It's really inspiring as well, actually. So also, I think it's really handy, too, because it means that we don't have to make it up as we go along. You know, (laughs) it's not about always reinventing the wheel. We can actually look back. We can look back at you know how people have done stuff in the past and then decide "Mm, you know what I'm going to take that but I'm just going to do it even better I've, I've always said this I've gone on record many times as saying that I think the part of the legacy of the AIDS pandemic is the manner in which we found ways to survive the the brutality of the period. you know the the coping mechanisms and survival strategies of the period were really important to, to us. I, I mentioned the Irish Queer Archive and I should correct a common misconception that I, I, that I founded the Irish Queer Archive and actually what I did was simply arrive in Outhouse in Dublin in uh, a little bit around this time in 1997 And I walked into a room that was just full of black plastic bags. The National LGBT Federation moved into new offices in what would be the first iteration of Outhouse on South William Street over a fabulous Indian restaurant, if my memory serves me right. And anyway, there was just all of this documentation. And I turned around to Michael McGrain and the editor of GCN at the time, Deborah Ballard, and said, let me do something with this. And they took me on as a part-time employee. And then I got motivated some other people and then pony up some cash. And not long afterwards, a couple of years later, put a name on it. So what I really did was I took earlier collections from groups like the Sexual Liberation Movement, which was founded in Trinity in, in 73. Took also the documents from the Irish gay rights movement, which was founded in 1974 took the National Gay Federation's documents, then also acquires the administrative records of groups like uh, Lost Lesbians Organising Together, myriad and a number of other different different groups, publishing groups, and essentially put some form in it and gave it a name as well because I didn't like the... It was originally called the National Lesbian and Gay Archive and that just didn't really describe the breadth and width of the collection certainly didn't describe the, the, the richness and variety of the collection. You know, earlier on you were talking about gender and sexuality, and you know they're they're two sides of the same coin. We can't have a conversation about one without having without actually embracing the other. And it's it's not for nothing that you know historically the gay, feminized gay men have been the target of bullying and harassment by uber straight straight guys it's because of course you know the cultural misogyny that's that has existed since time immemorial and we simply can't have the idea that someone uh, a man could actually allow himself to be feminized and be seen as weak or less simply just doesn't ride uh, but anyway i'm digressing but back to the irish Girl archive So, yeah, it was about putting some form on it and then being an advocate for it and essentially doing what I'm best doing, which is being mouthy, (laughs) 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 trying to persuade persuade people to actually give it cash and make it fly. I always had a vision for a self-standing independent archive, but not unlike say the Lesbian Herstory Archive in New York, which I've always been a huge admirer of. And I i think there's, there's a lot to be said for us shaping and controlling our own history, LGBT people shaping and controlling our own history.
0: The Lesbian Herstory Archives, as Tony mentions, are a foundational collection of lesbian and women's organizations, activism, And politics in New York, created at the beginning of the 1970s. The archives, now located in their permanent home on the Upper West Side in the apartment that once belonged to one of their founders, Joan Nestle, were created by a group of women within the gay academic union, who realised that lesbian history was, and I quote, disappearing as quickly as it was being made. The archives, still open today and free to visit and use, are an example of community-centered, owned and managed projects that run throughout political organising. They are a testament to the long and rich history of lesbian politics, and a bastion of standing firm in the face of endangering forces. The Irish queer archives that Tony helped to found, as he mentions, were very much inspired by the Lesbian History archives. Such projects demonstrate the tenacity and dexterity of queer activism and politics, and are vital records of our shared, collective and individual histories. They are pivotal in maintaining access to a history that might otherwise be forgotten or erased, and are consequently massively important to contemporary queer organising and community. The foundations of Queer Ireland are very much preserved in and by these archives.
1: But you know what? It's the Irish Archive is in the National Library of Ireland, and it's in a state repository, and I think that's a really brilliant thing. The symbolism is enormous in terms of what it says about Irish society and statutory Ireland not only taking ownership of our history but valuing it and being seen to, to do something important with it and acknowledging that this is a repository that is worth sharing with the rest of Ireland. You know, that it's, we can't, to paraphrase the great Comte to being, that you can't write a history of modern Ireland without accessing and acknowledging everything that's in the Irish Square Archive. But, you know, talking about ownership and everything brings me back to one of the reasons why I set up GCN. Part from the fact that I wanted a job as a, as a jobbing journalist and I've been working as a staff reporter on Ad Magazine, which was Ireland's first commercial and magazine, and it had floundered. There was a massive number of problems. And printers refused to print it. I mean, you're probably familiar with all of these stories. The Carlow and times Times. Uh, for I'll just re- briefly recap for anyone who doesn't know this, but the it had an uphill struggle. It ran for four years. It had an uphill struggle as Ireland's first glossy consumer commercial consumer title. It had an uphill struggle trying to get a, a advertising in an economically and socially hostile environment. It has some great writers, great opinions. It was a fabulous platform. Now, McCafferty was a regular contributor. It, it did some amazing work in documenting the unfolding uh, AIDS pandemic and amongst other things. But it was always under-capitalised and uh, it operated on the shoestring. So all it needed was just one small problem to just tip it over. And that happened with the penultimate issue where the Carlin and Esther Times to, took an exception to a fairly innocuous Safer Sex ad. A fecking Safer Sex ad, when you think about it now, it's so ridiculous. And they refused to print it because well, this is in the context of male homosexuality being illegal. It took exception to a for sex ad and refused to print it. And the thing just collapsed. And I was out of a job and I was really incensed. You know, I was 26, 27. I was out of a job and I thought I was going to, I had a great writing career ahead of me. So I wanted a platform. So selfishly, I wanted the platform to be published. But the thing as an activist, the thing that really, really riled me was that the state was actively censoring our access as a community, was censoring our access to information. It had twice tried to ban Gay News, which was published in the London School of Economics in 1973. It's now called Gay Times, it's been morphed into Gay Times in the mid 80s, but Gay News was and remains Europe's largest, uh, most successful English language newspaper fabulous, fabulous A3 newspaper, and uh, the government tr- twice tried to ban it, citing the old Victorian legislation, which was basically a cop-out, claiming that it was indecent and obscene, whatever, whatever, whatever. But they tr- they banned it in the late 70s, and they tried to ban it in 1982, but we were opposed to ban in 1982, and we were a lot better organised. But so, you know, I am mentioning this because that's the type of climate we had. So setting up GCN was really important in terms of developing a platform where our voices were heard and our voices mattered, because you know what? The mainstream media didn't give a toss about it. And the mainstream media has been long in coming to a place where it actually freely accommodates our stories. And even even today, even today, there are LGBT people working in every branch of the print and broadcast media. To in good and bad ways, some some people are limited, and some people have extraordinary freedoms. Our stories get out there, frankly. They get out there now. We see ourselves represented in pop culture and everything else. We have anchor men and women who are LGBT, whatever, running magazine programs, news shows, and everything else. It's so much different from what it was. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, definitely 30 years ago. But you know what? I think there's still a need for us to define our own narrative. There's a need for us to actually parse the stories of our struggle and to ensure that they're preserved. And this comes down to, and we can even see that the way this playing out, the fraught nature of conversations around gender identity, especially in countries close to us like England. You know, I mean, I think one of the interesting things in Ireland is that it seems to me that the Irish feminists had a conversation amongst themselves about, or if they didn't have a conversation, they knew instinctively what the answer was to the question of how we embrace the concerns and needs of our trans brothers and sisters. With the results that actually it seems that the women, Irish women's liberation movement in all its guises is on board with the trans struggle in a way that it's just not it's utterly fractured and venomous and fraught in countries like uh, the UK but it seems that we've we've had much much better accommodation much greater sense there's compassion and understanding seem to be more as qualities seem to be more embedded and and inform the conversations that we're having here but i do think that there's always been an abiding need on the part of the LGBT community, for us to frame our stories on our own terms. Really, 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 really important. Because you know what history has shown us that we can't we can't trust other people to do it for us. You know? And that's down to whether it's the language we use or the type of imagery that we choose to actually define. our our cultural choices, all of that's really important. And you know what, I'll be damned if I'm going to have arguments with some mainstream sub-editor of magazine and newspaper about what pictures should be allowed or what words and terms I should use if I'm writing a really important like 3,000-word essay or whatever else, you know. I'd like, I think it's really important to know that there's a choice there for us, that there are other platforms that we have. There are podcasts, there are broadcasts, there are queer channels on YouTube or whatever else. There's a whole panoply of broadcasting. And I think too also that increasingly diverse and noisy landscape of broadcasting is also really important because it's necessary for us to actually create a landscape of inclusivity. You know, but we have to remember that is, you know, going back to our, our the comment about I made about the LGBT community not being this monolithic construct, that there's a multiplicity of voices. And if we're going to do ourselves any, any favor, and if we're going to if we're going to ensure that we get to the promised land and we're we can enjoy it and bring bring as many people with us. Then we need to find we need to develop the structures that will actually allow everybody into the conversation. That's really important because too often those you know voices have been locked out.
0: I 100% agree, and and I think this is where this is the direction that a lot of conversations are going in now, that it's not about finding a representative of this supposedly monolithic community to speak for all of us. Mm. You know, it's so much more about saying there should be a platform for individual experience so that we don't homogenize groups, Mm -hmm. so that we don't presume what experiences these individuals have had based on them fitting into a particular demographic, because that's ultimately what the intersectional perspective is about. It's about saying... It's not just about reducing us down to our gender or our sexuality. It's about every other aspect of our experience. It's about all the other protected characteristics and everything that doesn't fit into a box as well.
1: And so... I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And it's, it's really, really important. You know, it's... I mean, if I was inclined to be a sort of spiritual person, I, the line I would come out with right now is, well, God made us all in his or her image, you know? Everyone and everything has value, even if it's even if it's something that we have difficulty actually accommodating.
0: And I guess on that note, I'm going to invite you to answer my final question, this one, because you've been incredibly comprehensive. Um And that is, I guess, from your individual standpoint, based on the perspective you've had, the experiences you've had, what do you feel is still on the agenda for queer rights in Ireland and what work still needs to be done? It's a big question.
1: The first thing I would say, and it's an easy, it's an easy, it comes quite easy to me, is that we need to be ever mindful of creating and enabling new structures for queer cultural heritage. I think the legislative battles have been fought, and now we can actually divert, we can really emphatically divert our attention to culture, what queer culture means, how it plays out, how we enable it, how we give it a voice, how we give it many voices, how we value it how we value it on every level, economically, socially, in every way. I think that's really... So culture, for me, is really important because culture actually helps us find a new way of living and it gives us comfort in the choices that we make. And I also think we need to turn our sense of outrage at being othered, our sense of outrage at social injustice, at people being forced to live miserable lives. All of that outrage, I think we need to also now refine and focus towards the needs of other people in our society who are suffering. We need to turn our attention, those of us who have an activist bone in our body, need to return our attention, not just to other LGBT people who are continue to be othered and marginalised, I'm thinking of LGBT travellers. I'm thinking of LGBT people in direct provision who've got a distinct set of social, cultural, and indeed political needs that need to be addressed. I'm thinking of how we use our voice individually and now, and in Ireland as, as a community, how we use our voice and to. Uh, shine a light on atrocities that are happening in other parts of the world and particularly within the European Union. We need to be really vocal in, not, in putting down and not accepting some of the stuff that's happening in countries like Poland or Hungary or Russia or Turkey. Expect some noise from me next year. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I, I do think we have... For those of us who have arrived at the promised land, or whatever that promised land constitutes in our head, I think we have a duty of care. I always say we have a duty of care to others that's fortunate than us. And we should never forget the struggle, the choices we made in overcoming our own struggle for acceptance, and put that to the use of other people. Liberation is like getting to the top of the mountain, you know, being liberated. It's like getting to the top of the mountain and and seeing this extraordinary view in front of you. But you know what? Wouldn't it be much better if you had loads of people with you to actually enjoy that view? You know? So we need to do whatever we can. We need to do whatever we can. We need to use every fiber of our humanity. To call out, to call out bad behavior when we see it, and to be an example to other people. And a lot of the time that's just simply about that comes down to nothing more simple than just simply going about one's life with conviction and realness and honesty. There's there's a life of activism, but not that's not for everyone. But I think you know, activism starts with the, the individual individual choices we make. And decisions we make about living our life with honesty, and that's a powerful—that's a powerful aphrodisiac to other people. It's enormously liberating. It's enormously enabling to other people because you can be sure of it that somebody is watching you. I bet right now somebody's reading one of your posts on your slash queer posts on Insta and they're on the other side of the world and they're going, I want to be like that woman or I want to be like that person that she's just interviewed or whatever and this is me and they see themselves reflected back and they see themselves reflected back with positivity because you made certain choices and you made certain choices to also share your unique queer worldview and your humanity with other people. It's really fundamentally important.
0: I'm quite emotional. Um thank you so much for yeah, I I love what you said about liberation being like climbing the mountain and how much better it feels to be up there with other people. I think that is gorgeous. Well, thank you very much for answering all of my questions. I have learned so much. So yeah, thank you.
1: I wish we were there we could actually devolve the cheese and mine.
0: <laughs> Tony's perspective on queer Ireland is incomparable in value and impact. Tony's conceptualization of queerness is of something individual, personal and subjective to change as LGBTQ+ politics have evolved in recent Irish history. An effective queer politics and activism then understands the import of arguing not for a dilution of rights and liberations for a select few, but for the freedom from social persecution for all, to live as one is. Is this not what queer is at heart? Of course, queer entails a broad scope of other ideals and values. But it is perhaps this relentless pursuit of liberation in the face of institutional and social backlash, for the betterment of all people that characterises queer as a concept best. What we must also take from Tony's testimony is more than just the individual fight for queerness. What Tony's account perhaps exemplifies best is the importance and significance of community and collectivity. It is in unity and coalition that queer politics are strongest and most effective and it is in the foundations of queer to seek alliance with others. The Irish queer community is, as Tony demonstrates, an immensely diverse and extraordinarily strong movement that illustrates the power and potential for collective change. In forming coalition between communities and identities, recognizing common struggles and fighting for one another, Irish queer politics is a stronghold of queer community and love defined in its own terms, perpetually in the face of those who might argue otherwise. Speaking to Tony and listening to his story has been a transformational experience for us in the Slash Queer team. And since our talk, I have often found myself thinking about the view from the mountain. That peak of freedom and justice that Tony describes, and the joy that can only truly be achieved in sharing that view with those we have brought up to sit atop the mountain with us. Next episode is our final episode, not only in Ireland, but in this season of Slash Queer, and we will be spending it talking about one final example from Irish queer history of powerful and compassionate activists shepherding their people to that summit of liberation. I'll join you next time as we finish Season 1 of Slash Queer. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith, co-scripted and produced by myself and Matt Thompson, and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Tony Walsh for his wisdom and insight in both this episode and our previous episode. Thanks also to our wonderful Patreon subscribers, our humble team of volunteers appreciate every penny you donate to fund our work. If you're not a patron and you want to support the podcast, you can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer, that's s-l-a-s-h queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. We are still selling all our slash queer merch on Threadless and are still accepting donations via Coffee. and you can find the links to both in the description for this episode. Finally, a thank you as usual goes to you, our wonderful listeners. Thank you for always giving this project time and sharing it with the people in your life. This episode was recorded on location in London, the United Kingdom. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoy this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at slash queer, or email us at slashqueer at outlook As always, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.